Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now, there, I just want to mention the two main reasons why you go to college. There are at least two. Besides finding the right companion, there are two. Um, the first one is so that it will be more difficult to deceive you. That's really why we have the university, so that you can find out what is good and what is true, and what is evil and false. And we, we're trying to help the student distinguish between good and evil. Now, I've mentioned to you before, I think, that I, you know I couldn't convince you that 2 plus 2 is 7. <clears throat> I might be able to temporarily deceive many of you into thinking that 49 times 49 is 3,581. If I talk real fast and put it in there, you see, until you figured it out. You really wouldn't know. Now, at the moment that you depend upon somebody else to tell you what is the truth, to that extent, you, we, ha we play the role of the sheep, don't we? Now, a sheep is a very sweet, lovely, loving, wonderful comfort to man. But they are very easily deceived. And so the next purpose of our, purpose, uh, our coming to college is to be shepherds instead of sheep. Now, some of the time you have to be followers or sheep. But to learn, to teach you how to think for yourself, how to get the facts for yourself, how to come to your own conclusion, a humble one, of course, subject to more revelation, knowledge, and guidance, but nevertheless, how to think for yourself and how to get the facts for yourself, that's an important part of coming to college. Now, we do pretty well in science. We, we get pretty independent in science. It's in the humanities where we stumble all over ourselves. And it's almost as though the math student had to go back to Pythagoras and start all over again to be absolutely sure Pythagoras was right when he went down to Heliopolis and got the word from the Egyptians and so forth and developed some of his contributions in math. We don't. We've learned those lessons. We have confidence in them when we go on. Not in the humanities. Therefore, we repeat almost every second generation, at least, and sometimes every generation, the same errors, because we do not get to the position of knowing enough to guide ourselves. And we depend upon whims, astrology, Uncle Joe, uh, Aunt Jane, or somebody, somebody with an opinion. We don't know for ourselves. In the area of political issues, we, as a people, not just Latter-day Saints, but the whole country, we're extremely uh, uninformed and too busy to find out. So that's got to change. We definitely have got to change that. Your 
your uh, welfare is at stake and so are your future children. So I've been waiting for many, many years for somebody to do something that all of us knew somebody ought to do. And as I've told you a couple of weeks ago, we're now trying to make a little contribution in that field, which we hope will be helpful. And that's to tell both sides of the issues as best we can, and then let the person choose. Now today I have a copy of a report which is the only published, the only public copy of the Democratic National Platform available in print anywhere in the United States, they told us in Washington. And they gave us permission to print it. So this is what the Democratic platform turned out to be. Now they decided not to print their platform because they didn't think people read them and it was a big waste of money. But you really do need to know what they stand for. And so this entire issue of the Freeman Report is the Democrat story the way they want it told. It's, it's the story of, um, of Senator McGovern the way he wants it presented. It's his story of his life. How much education did Senator McGovern get? Any of you know? PhD in what field? History, political science. Uh, anybody know what state he represents? See, that's right, South Dakota. Um, anybody know what he was before he was a senator? Before that, in the beginning, was an educator teaching at uh, college. But did he have any other political experience? Was he a governor? Ever been uh, in a state legislature? What was he? Well, before he was a senator, I mean. He was a congressman. Then he was an assistant to the president. And he was in charge of the um, of the program uh, economic um, distribution for the poor. What did they call it? Had a title. So that's that's basically his background. All right, so what we did was to take his story, and I wrote that part myself so that and I, I, it's all exclusively out of his writings. I mean, all these facts are his. And he says, I am for a one-world government. Now, that's not, some people will disagree with that, but that's something he's proud of. He wants everybody to know that he stands for, for moving us over into one-world society. And uh, that's his whole history. And then the story of when he went to the convention is really something. Um, the Democratic National Convention was a hot battleground, and he had, to, he had always believed that if a candidate uh, ran in the primaries, uh, he should be able to go to the convention with whatever proportion of the delegates he was able to get, and it was called proportional representation. Now, the old rule was winner take all. In other words, uh, if you got 28% of the vote, in California in the primaries, and, and the other was among the others, kind of scattered out among the others, you'd be able to take the whole delegation because you were the number one. Your 28% was winner. So you get all the delegates from California. And he said, that isn't right. But when he got back to the convention, he found that that would steal the nomination from him, that that very principle would prevent him from being nominated. And he said, I, I've won the primaries, and I'm not going to have this stolen from me. I'm going to go back to the old rule, winner take all. And he took it into the courts and he won. Went clear to the Supreme Court. It was a real battleground. That's that story. It's real interesting. And the old timers in the party felt that the party was being stolen from them. So that's their story over on this page. These are the dissidents, the democratic dissidents that felt like they were shoved aside and they weren't given adequate consideration. But there um, is the whole democratic platform. We were given permission to print it. It's the only one available to the public as far as we know in the United States. See, there it is, covers that. And some of the things that are 
are there are tremendously interesting. You'll agree with some of it, others you may not agree with. Now next week, the Republican platform, and we'll do the same thing. We will tell it the way the Republicans want to tell it, so that you're quoting them, not the Freeman Report. Let me just read you one little bit here. This is the way they begin their preamble. Skepticism and cynicism are widespread in America. The people are skeptical of platforms, filled with political platitudes, of promises made by opportunistic politicians. Now our traditions, our history, our constitution, our laws, all say that America belongs to the people, all the people. But the people no longer believe that. They feel that the government is run for the privileged few rather than for the many, and they are right. As Democrats, we know that we share our responsibility for the loss of confidence in government, and we want to do something about it. So here's our platform. This is what we would do if we won. So you go down, and, and I want you to read this like you read a sports page or the funny papers, whichever you enjoy reading at your leisure. You read every word. I watch people review political news. I'll say, hmm, domestic policy, taxation reform, wow, property tax, social security, labor, right of veterans, man, Vietnam, amnesty, wow, support Israel, two-way trade, hmm, I got the platform now. That's about the way they read it. They don't read anything about it. So read this like you read the sports page where you get the, um, the runs and errors and, and everything. I, I, some people just amaze me what they know about sports. And if we knew that much about political issues, we'd really be great. Right, and also the Socialist Party. All four. And you'll be amazed at the Socialist Party. We asked them for their platform, and they said, well, um, the uh, two major parties got our platform. <laughs> so um, we, went back to the, we went back to the 1932 Socialist Platform. We're going to print the whole 1932 Socialist Platform. You won't believe it. In fact, the headline reads, um, Socialist Platform 1932-USA-1972? Question mark. You'll be amazed. They feel very satisfied and victorious. No, they, they have a party, but they didn't come out with a platform as such. They just had all their people operate pretty much in the other two parties. Anyway, we're going to give you everything they would give us. And it's kind of interesting. And we got all of Norman Thomas's big story and what he's been saying, or what he said lately. Now, here's something you see I would be very much in favor of. Over here they say, we must return to Congress the, the meaningful decisions on peace and war. Now, that's where the Constitution put it. The president shouldn't be able to commit troops abroad without having it discussed in Congress. I'm very much in favor of that. And down here they did an amazing thing. They said, we're against foundations where the Fords and the Rockefellers and these people put their billions over in these foundations tax-exempt and then distribute them and pay their people their favorites a uh, certain 50000 a year, etc., and control the money and pay no taxes on it. We're against that. See, that that's, that's real interesting because that's a good principle. The interesting part about it is all those foundations used to be behind the Democrats. They're now behind the Republicans. So the Democrats say, let's do away with foundations. I thought that was interesting. Okay, um, then they've got busing and labor, and they've got population control. They want to repeal right to work. Uh, they want to oppose compulsory arbitration in labor disputes. That's interesting. 
Anyway, you will now be able to quote the Democrats accurately. This is really what they believe. Now we put uh, Governor Rampton's program that he and his party developed. That's the Utah platform. We've got a whole page of that so that you'll know that. Now, if any of your... Um, uh, these cost 25 cents a piece, except to BYU students. They're free. I bought enough of them for you, so you can all have a copy. Uh, you're welcome to. So if some of my helpers want to help distribute them, I think I have enough for everybody. You know, there's a lot of satisfaction. Uh, if you take the time to get this under your belt intellectually, there's a tremendous amount of satisfaction in being able to discuss it intelligently and authoritatively. And so that's what we've tried to put in your hands so that you know what you're talking about. You'll also notice that there was no attempt to editorialize, to comment, to analyze, to criticize. It's just the way they tell it. We'll do the same for the Republicans, the same for the American Party, and the same for the Socialists. The Socialists will be a little bit different because um, we will include, I think in that one, the betrayal of the Democratic Party to the Socialists by Al Smith. This is his famous 1936 speech in which he says to the Democrats, we don't any longer have our party. We are not any longer the party of the people. We have become the party of big government, and I'm, I was the one that um, put the man in as president that has achieved it. It's quite a speech, and it's a historical speech, so we include that one. Now, if you can tuck that away and, and don't lose it, just tuck it away. As I give these to you each week, you'll find that this accumulates into very valuable material because in, by the end of the year, we will have dealt with 52 issues on both sides, and you notice everything is documented. In this case, this is the Democratic platform from the original copy, Xeroxed and sent to us from Washington with permission to print it, and we have it in our file. You'll appreciate, of course, this is an abstract. These are the first two or three paragraphs, usually, of each... Uh, or sometimes the first paragraph of each issue. Then there's a lot of justification and detailed material that's underneath it. <clears throat> now in your opening chapter of your text, there are two or three things that always appear on the examination, so I want you to be sure and, and make note of it, because um, in none of our books did I find anything that discussed in depth who are God's chosen people. And because this is a very confusing thing to many people who take great pride in their ancestry, we thought that we would uh, delineate who God's chosen people really are. And one word describes the chosen people of God, regardless whether they're black, white, yellow, or pink. There is just one word that describes which ones are chosen of God. And what's that word? Yes, righteous obedience would be the two words, and obedience is sufficient. When I ask you... What make, what's the difference between a chosen person of God and one that's not chosen? The word is whether or not he's obeying God. And if he's obeying God, he becomes chosen. If he's not obeying God, it won't matter what his ancestry was, no matter how illustrious his position, he can be the most accomplished pianist in the world, the most magnificent artist in the world, and if he is disobeying God's commandments, he is not chosen. Now, that's important for us to understand. Now... The Lord has a way of, uh, of choosing people. He says he's no respecter of persons and that uh, anybody, uh, he can be born of Japheth or of Ham and be just as chosen as the prime heirs of the kingdom, which are of Shem, by being obedient. Now, we came out of heaven, the brethren tell us, already uh, obeying God in certain levels of integrity. 
The top level are, is called the celestial, that's total obedience. Then there's another level that never fights God. They're kind of for him, but, uh, you know, not all the way. A little bit for me, not, not all the way with God. That's sort of terrestrial. Then there are the people that they, they just kind of drag their feet. We've got to do that? Well, well, if you insist, it's that kind of a spirit. That's celestial way down. And on this earth, they actually rebel. They're extremely rebellious, and they are the most numerous of all of our Father's children. Uh, they, they tend not only to drag their feet, but to rebel. And uh, it's possible for them to get clear up to the celestial glory if they'll exert the extra effort. And among the heathen nations, the Lord says, I've put most of my terrestrial spirits and scattered enough of my celestial among them to kind of be a leaven to lift them. Because I desire to lift all, all of my children as high as they're willing to go. And the 88th section says nobody will go higher than the degree of law that he's happy under. So you could be an heir to the celestial kingdom and end up in the terrestrial kingdom just because it was, there were too many meetings. I mean, it was just too tough. That's too tight up there. I, I get a little looser. Okay, that's terrestrial. Fine, that's where I'm headed. So um, that's the way we actually choose the level of law we live under. And so the terrestrial spirits as a body have some celestial among them. Therefore, when we go out and preach the gospel among those nations that worship, uh, that are worshiping... Uh, well, they're called heathens. That really means that they do not worship God as such. Among them, we have our brothers and sisters. And when Brother Benson was asked to open up those missions, he told us in high priest meeting what he told the missionaries to do. And he returned missionaries from Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Any in this class? That's strange. Yeah, one or two. Okay, good. Well, Brother Benson, you, you will know whether or not this was still in force when you were there. He said, I instructed the mission presidents to tell the, the missionaries to go out and work by the Spirit, bear their testimonies, emphasize bearing testimonies, and watch the people as you bear your testimony. And if the Spirit sparks, fine. If it doesn't move right on till we find our brothers and sisters, and they in turn will help the others. But we're looking for our brothers and sisters first. And... Um, it's just grown like topsy over there. Just thrilling. Okay. Once you understand uh, the Lord's problem of trying to lift his children, you begin to catch a sense of your own responsibility. If you've been born under the covenant or born where you could hear the gospel, you have a tremendous responsibility. The Lord is really depending upon you to be a soldier of God. Described by Moses in the 32nd uh, chapter of Deuteronomy, 8th verse, 7th and 8th verse where he says before the foundations of the world, he outlined the whole history of mankind in terms of how many of you he had available and where he could scatter you. He didn't have very many of you. So you're extremely precious. And don't let the Lord down. Don't become inactive. Don't get yourself involved in drugs or immorality or any of the things that will swing you off this very fast spinning program that's been established now in the latter days. Now there's... Um, a real interesting passage that anyone who is a Gentile or of the tribe of Ham who is willing to be obedient and uh, go forward in the program of the Lord automatically through that obedience becomes known as the seed of whom? Abraham. To receive the blessings of Abraham doesn't change their lineal uh, descent, but it does change their whole frame of reference. They are entitled to the blessings of Abraham. And uh, because the seed of Ham 
had a little difficulty in the pre-existence described in the 13th chapter of Alma, 6th and 7th verses, as those whom God foreknew would not accept priesthood service, therefore it was postponed in this life so they could not receive it. But they can eventually receive it if they're obedient. So they get all the blessings of Abraham too. Now just stand with us. Now I have two or three of the seed of Ham in my, one of my other, some of my other classes, and they're just great Latter-day Saints. They know exactly what they got to do. They got to make up for lost time, and they're doing it. And I had one of them speak to my uh, uh, Old Testament class um, at the two o'clock Old Testament class, in which um, he appealed to the priesthood. He said, "Now the women of the church and we who are of Ham, depending upon you, brethren, to be good leaders, to understand the doctrine." and to get right in there and make the church acceptable to the Lord and to keep our temples holy, etc. Now, will you do a better job? It was great to hear him plead with the priesthood to be more valiant. We're depending on you, brethren. That's just great. All right, um, characteristics of God's chosen people. And uh, I'd kind of keep a few of those in mind. Now, there are a lot of people that like to study the gospel topically. You find that topics are very difficult to remember unless they're identified with a historical situation. And if I ask you, I've got about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, I've got about 15 or 16 characteristics of those people. And you'll be amazed how hard it will be for you in the examination to come up with three or four of them. You're going to really have to concentrate on that. If I put it in a, in a storytelling situation, historical situation, you can remember it. And that's why the manuals that are set up in terms of subject matter are too abstract. I find the saints do not remember them very long. That's why I like to study everything in terms of the historical setting when it was revealed. For example, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What was that with reference to? Christ and the adulteress. You see how that comes just like that, doesn't it? Or what did Christ say when he was writing in the sand? What did he write when the, the adulteress had been captive and they, they wanted to stone her, which was literally possible? Uh, what did he write? See, that comes to you immediately. Let him without sin cast the first stone. See how that will come to you? All right. May have been that. But he was down, he kneeled down, was writing in the dirt. And there's some questions whether he wrote it or said it. In any event... Uh, my point is that if you have that in its historical setting, it's easier to recall, isn't it? Okay, now that's going to be true of the whole gospel. So whenever they come along and structure the gospel into abstracts, I say to myself, it's very sophisticated, and somebody had a great time doing it, but as a learning and teaching device, it is very uneconomical. That's my experience. That's why in all my classes, no matter what the manual is, I put it back down out of the abstract and into the historical setting. In spite of that, I have abstracted this little bit for you to give you some of the 15 characteristics of the people chosen of God. And they typify the great pioneer spirit and the spirit of the prophet, spirit of sacrifice, strong self-discipline, hard, humble work, willingness to keep God's commandments without rebelling and bucking, a worldview of individuals, accepting and loving and appreciating people wherever they are in the earth, Sure, they speak a little differently, they dress a little differently, they have little quaint habits that are uh, beautiful if you take them in their setting. Uh, some of them are uh, uh, very solemn. Uh, some of the, the, the uh, tribes of the nations of the earth, very solemn, very serious. And uh, others, uh, real happy-go-lucky, childlike giggling, so forth. 
very easy for it because they're different to, to, to feel a prejudice against them. But the prophets of God love our father's children wherever they are in their world setting. In our church, we never try to wipe out the basic culture of a people. We try to preserve that culture. We do not try to homogenize and make them all the same. And uh, you go over to the Polynesian Islands or go to the Hawaiian Islands where the church has set up something to preserve the culture of all the Polynesian peoples. And it's the number one tourist attraction in Hawaii when you go, right? Okay. Uh, then uh, be willing to tear up roots and move, go wherever you have to, on a mission, wherever. And being a continuous study, fight the boob tube, fight it. It's the curse of this generation to draw you away from conscientious study of good books. We're be we get out of school and your mothers and fathers, you ask them how much reading they get to do. If they have the slightest moment for relaxation, Click it on. What's going on? Oh, the game. Oh, I hope he wins. All of a sudden, we're deeply involved. Go, boy, go. Forget about how many debts we owe and what taxes are due, etc. Go, go, go. That boob tube is robbing this generation of its intellectual inheritance. Be a good student. At least one hour a day on the scriptures. One hour a day, every day on the scriptures. Okay. Now, fulfill the purposes of earth life. Raise a large as large a family of well-trained and well-loved children as health and circumstances will permit. You see, we believe in a planned family, planning to have as many as we can. And uh, to prove worthy of continuous advancement in the priesthood, come right on up through the priesthood ranks. Don't get yourself swung off by being out of touch with the brethren. Keep coming up to serve cheerfully in the Lord's kingdom, whatever the capacity. We have our stake president now teaching uh, eight-year-olds. Uh, just great. He's the best teacher those eight-year-olds ever had. They love him. He takes them on trips. He has them over to the house Sunday afternoon. Boy, he's a great teacher. They just love him. And that was the worst class in the whole Sunday school. The ex-stake president took it over. Serve willingly in public life when needed, including civil offices, elected posts, and the military and teach, speak, travel, write, or serve in every possible way to promote righteousness in the earth, whether spiritual or secular. And be continually engaged in a good cause. Don't have to be commanded in all things, for he that is is a slothful servant. To be a good provider, that's very basic. Some people want to be so righteous that they don't have any time to earn a living for their family. And uh, Paul says even the heathens do better than that. Be a good provider and stand up and be counted when the forces of evil sweep in to destroy God's kingdom or the rights and liberties of his children. This is what is typical of the great of the past and that and we want to copy them to the best that we are able to. Now I gave you the historical setting for the third thousand years. You should know that all northern Africa that's now Sahara Desert we're finding was once beautiful, wonderful, cultivated land that buried beneath some of those sands are the ruins of cities that had populations of over a million. And they overgrazed the land and turned it into a desert. Uh, Rome was responsible for a lot of it, but in any event, it was a little different. Where Damascus now is, total desert, used to be magnificent forests of huge trees all around there. And one conqueror after another would burn them down. Then they'd grow back again, burn them down. Next conqueror would come and burn them, burn them down. Then they'd grow them, burn them down. Finally, the erosion got started. Now, only the desert. Uh, across uh, Asia, there were vast bodies of waters. Brother Nibley has pointed out. The Jaredites could have gone that way and built their barges just as well as they could have come across the Atlantic. 
And while the evidence does seem to appear that they crossed the Atlantic in 344 days, there were great bodies of water in the other direction, which there no, are not now. They're just uh, prairies and um, the Gobi Desert and so forth. That all used to be huge inland bodies of water as though it had been left by a great flood. Now, uh, the cultural setting for the third thousand years I mentioned to you, uh, we, we had the, the heights and the depths. Uh, we had some people so righteous they were to be able to be translated like the people of Melchizedek ten generations after Noah. We had others that were just as depraved as those that got themselves wiped off the face of the earth by the great flood. And all within the lifetime of Noah who lived 350 years after the flood. Well, uh, you need some kind of a, t of a goal. And to read one chapter of the Book of Mormon before you go to sleep isn't entirely wasted but it's only about 10% efficient. So if you'll take a whole hour and say, this is my study hour, and get off by yourself, no TV, no radio, no telephone, no interruptions, you're just gone. And the mine is usually between 5 and 6, or 5.30 and 6.30, right in there. Um, boy, it's productive. It's so exciting, you hardly wait till tomorrow morning. If you do it for 20 minutes, just not enough. You, you really need a chance to give the spirit time to work on your mind. That's why I used an hour. Of course, if, if you aren't able to, why, that's something else. But, and of course, you do because that's part of your schoolwork. But it's after you get your little family coming along. That's when people begin to neglect studying. And our forefathers, you see, they get up at 4 o'clock, milk a bunch of cows, have a little bite of breakfast, go out and work until dark, come in, milk a bunch of cows. And they knew more about their scriptures than this generation does. That, that should tell us something. And they're going to be our judges, you see. You say, well, Grandpa, I, I didn't know that. You didn't know that, son. Well, no, uh, was that what I was supposed to do? You mean you haven't read Isaiah 48? <laughs> I mean, what's in Isaiah 48, Grandpa? You don't know? <laughs> That's going to be a real interesting dialogue. Okay. Now, there were two pre-flood men left when Abraham was born. They were still on the earth, at least two that we know of. Who were they? Noah and Shem. Uh, did Noah outlive Abraham? Uh, no, he died when Abraham was 28. Did Shem outlive Abraham? Yes, completely. He lived 502 years after the flood. He lived out, Abraham, uh, outlived Abraham a considerable period of time. All right, uh, now the, the vestal virgin prostitution is back, uh, human sacrifice is back on the earth, all the things that were such an abomination to the Lord. And so Abraham comes into the earth, has to get the priesthood from somebody other than his father. Got it from whom? Yes, you practically all got that one. He got it from Melchizedek, 84th section. You see, nobody knows that except uh, those who have access to the restored um, scriptures. Not in the Bible. Everybody assumed that he was ordained by Melchizedek when uh, he paid tithes to Melchizedek. And that's an assumption. It doesn't say he was ordained. But he was ordained by Melchizedek when he was just a boy before his marriage. His youth, I should say, prior to his marriage in any event. And then uh, he, uh, the, there was terrible famine. He almost got sacrificed by his own father and the priest of Egypt, Pharaoh. And then he escaped, went up to Haran. He left Haran at what age? 62. Finally made his way down to the promised land and went down into Egypt. Came back out and, and arrived and established himself at what age in Canaan? At 75. What great event happened when he was 86? Ishmael was born. When was circumcision introduced? Immediately afterwards, wasn't it? In connection with the birth of Ishmael. Um, let's see. Um, 
excuse me, um, no, he was older. It was in connection with, with Ishmael, but, but um, the year before um, Isaac was born, 13, about 13, 13 years, wouldn't it be? Well, it'd be 13, 18, 89, Sarah was 89, let's see, and he was 99, 99, 86, 99. Okay, and uh, so was Abraham circumcised at this time? Yes, 99 years old, circumcised. So was everybody else. The Lord says, this is a covenant unto you forever. And was it a covenant to Abraham forever? But did it stop with what? Ministry of Christ, the coming of Christ. It's, it was stopped. Um, but nevertheless, it was an eternal covenant as far as Abraham and his descendants were concerned until the Lord stopped it. It was, it was eternal. Now, um, Isaac was born when his father was how old? How old was his father when Isaac was born? 100. How old was his mother? That's pretty wonderful, you see. 90 years old. No wonder she laughed. And um, then when um, Sarah died, how old was Isaac? 37 years old. She died um, uh, when she was 127. And so that means that Isaac was 37 because she was 90 when he was born. Okay? Everybody follow that? Okay, and then three years later, Father Abraham thought it was time to get him a wife. And um, he sent his... Who did he send to get the, the um, wife for Isaac? His steward, his chief steward. And uh, was his chief steward happy to go? He sure wasn't. Boy, that's a tough assignment to pick out a bride for your boss. And his son, rather. Um, did he go alone? Ten camels in the caravan, wasn't it? And uh, when he got up there, one of the interesting things about uh, his approach there, he knelt down and he said, Heavenly Father, this is too much. I've got this terrible assignment here. I've got to pick out one of these girls, and uh, I, I'm not going to know which one it is, so I've just got to have your help. And so I'm going to give a real hard test. I'm going to ask drinks of, of these girls when they come along. And the one that says, I'll not only give you a drink, but I'll bail up all the water necessary for your ten camels which no girl in her right mind would do, of course. <laughs> if you've ever bailed water for a camel and seen how much a camel can drink, you'd never volunteer for that assignment. <laughs> and so he said, uh, I'd like to have make that the test if you don't mind. And the Lord didn't say he would or he wouldn't, but he's, here came a very beautiful girl, and he, come, and he says, please, a drink? Oh, she said, yes, and I'll, give, I'll get a drink for all your camels. <laughs> oh, have I got the right one? So he, he sits there and watches her. And she waters all those camels. Boy, and they're just off the desert. Man, they take a tank one at a time. And she finally gets them all watered. And then he kneels down on the ground. <clears throat> he goes over and first he puts the bracelets on her hand, puts the earrings on her, and he kneels down and says, Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, my, my great master Abraham will be so happy that I've... And now the girl knows who he is. Oh... You're the um, servant of, of my uncle Abraham? Yes, yes. And then she runs home, tells uh, her brother Laban all about it. And, oh, so Laban says, I've got to go down and meet this man if it's uncle, uh, uh, uncle Abraham's servant. So he, they invite him to come up, and they have provender for his camels and everything. And, and they ask him to eat. He won't eat until he's done what? I want to tell you what's happened. I was sent up here to get a wife 
for my master's son. And I told the Lord, I want you to select the woman, the one that bails out this water voluntarily, and your Rebecca did it. And now I want to know if you let me take her down to marry her cousin. And of course, Laban and his father, uh, they said, well, uh, I guess it's in the hands of the Lord. We really don't have anything to say about it. Very good, said the servant. All right, that's fine. Well, they said, uh, you're not going to leave right away. We ought to stick around here a little while. I have a little farewell. And I uh, said, don't you think? And what did the man, what did the steward say? Don't delay me. Uh, everything's working good. Don't want any interruptions. I'm on my way. And uh, so they appealed to Rebecca. And was she willing to go? Yes. And then uh, they put her on this camel caravan. And um, that, that must have been a great satisfaction. Uh, as this master saw it, a beautiful girl he was bringing back for Isaac. Just beautiful, <laughs> just beautiful. And I thought it was extremely interesting the way the Bible describes it. They're coming along through the fields. And when the servant left, they were living um, up here. And um, I mean, he departed from here. Now they're down here. And so as he comes pretty close to the wells, uh, he, he sees a person coming and he can just tell by the gate or some other way uh, that uh, it's Isaac. Isaac. He says uh, to Rebecca, my master's son, that's, that, that, he's coming. Ooh, Rebecca says, stop the camel, stop the camel. <laughs> oh, she gets all... <laughs> Boy, I tell you. And... Uh, <clears throat> And it's kind of interesting that when they finally came and Isaac and, oh, what did you bring me? What is it going to be like now? And so the servant says, come over here, I want to tell you something. So he didn't introduce them immediately. He takes Isaac over by himself and he says, I want to tell you about this girl. This is a very special girl. I didn't select her. You didn't? No, the Lord did. He did? Yeah, the Lord did. Is she all right? I think so. You, you'll see. <laughs> Was it love at first sight? Oh, it was great. Now, um, the, fant the fantastic part about it all is that in spite of the great affection that they had, and she'll be so beautiful um, as time goes by, uh, uh, she'll be so beautiful and attractive as an elderly, a relatively elderly woman uh, that um, Isaac will be worried about the same thing happening to him that happened to his father in Egypt, won't he? So she undoubtedly, these, these women of Shem, boy, they were beautiful girls. So um, wasn't it amazing that she had to wait how many years before she had any children? She had a child. 19 years she had no, she was barren. She asked her husband to please ask the Lord now if it wouldn't be all right. And the Lord said, all right, all right, all right. So she had her children when she was, she'd been married how many years? 20 years, that's, that's right. Nine months makes 20 years. Okay, and um, the and one other interesting thing about this, she asked the Lord for her children. She's blessed with them. And then a terrible thing's happened. What happens to her? Extremely ill. How can you be so sick with a baby that, um, that the Lord gave you? Every mother says this. I'm doing what the Lord told me. How can I be so sick? And uh, we went through it eight times, and each time, you know, you wanted the same thing. Okay, this is, this is what the Lord was talking about when he said to Eve. This, this is the way it has to be, and it isn't too pleasant. But anyway, don't, don't blame me now. You ask for it. Okay. Now, when the Lord gave a revelation, who got it? Isaac? 
No, she was praying to the Lord, and she was told by, by, the, by the Lord through some instrumentality, angel or otherwise, that she didn't have a baby. She had two babies, and they were going to be the heads of two great kingdoms. And she was told which one would be the main heir. And which one was it? The younger one. And so when the older one was born, we got just one minute now, when the older one was born, he came forth, healthy, robust, rugged little fellow, bright red. He's fuzzy all over, and it's, it's red. A little fuzzy, uh, f fuzzy body. And uh, so they, they named him... Um, They named him Harry. <laughs> and a little later on, when the, when the little fuzz really got bright red, they named him what? They named him Edom, which is red, Harry the Red. <laughs> so you'll never forget his name. 